Well, hey there, everybody, yet again. Welcome back to the Nasty Pasty Podcast. It's me again, Andy Roberts, back with more gut-munching, soul-destroying, morally corrupting filth to meet out your weekend. The fact that you're here listening to me says a lot about you. Either you've ended up here by accident, by which case I have to apologise dearly, or you're here on purpose, which means that you must be into the horror genre. I'm also one of them, being rather a champagne socialist, I guess, when it comes to my horror choices, and this podcast showcases that very obsessive-compulsive desire to focus on one group in particular. I'm talking about the Video Nasties, a ragtag bunch of films that were listed by the authorities of Britain as being so obscene that decent people who watched them would be instantly become morally bad and harm society through the influence of the VHS. Hard to believe that such a draconian belief came to pass, but as is the case today, you can place most of the blame on the disgraceful tabloid press like The Sun and The Daily Mail, who still today peddle such nonsense that the world is ending and our country is in ruins because of XYZ. It would be a joke, really, if anything involving the films wasn't so serious back then. Video shop owners and distributors alike were subject to raids, fines and even imprisonment, while their VHS stock suffered worse, being legally prosecuted as obscene and consigned to the furnace, quite literally. Of course, common sense ultimately prevailed, and there's no such issues in the country today. But the remnants are constantly felt when loads of films are still subject to rabid censorship at the behest of decency. As the video nasties themselves are constantly focused on, I take a different approach, rather akin to an English A-level. I hunt for films from the same time period as the nasties, and ask why these examples weren't considered obscene when they were just as bad. A compare and contrast exercise, if you will. Today's guests of honour all revolve around zombie rip-offs, with Andrea Bianchi's Burial Ground and Bill Heinzman's Flesh Eater. I doubt anyone's unaware of rip-offs, especially in the zombie genre. I mean, the zombie genre itself is an offshoot of the work of George Romero on his Night, Dawn and Day series of movies, and almost every film in the subgenre since adheres to his established rules. The two examples today, however, clearly riff on another more successful or accomplished piece of work, so much so that even die-hard obsessives like me begin to roll my eyes at the blatant borrowing. So let's tuck straight into our first meal, Burial Ground.
Professor Ayres, an academic studying the Etruscans, discovers a stone tablet in some caverns and translating it appears to have uncovered some sort of secret. Returning to the cave, he tries to breach where the tablet was placed, only to trigger a strange mechanism which unleashes a swarm of undead husks who surround and devour the man. Sometime later, a group of cars drives up towards the mansion where Ayres was staying at, and from the front car, a man called George gets out and rings the bell. It apparently belongs to him, bringing his wife Evelyn and their son Michael along for the ride. As the three cars park up, George meets up with his butler Nicholas and maid Kathleen and inquires about Professor Ayres' whereabouts, as the whole group enters the house. At night, Evelyn and George settle down for the evening with a blazing fire, while Michael suspiciously seems to be pretending to sleep. Next door, other guest James kinkily fools around with his girlfriend Leslie, who's acquired some naughty lingerie from an old trunk while George and Evelyn begin to have sex themselves, only for Michael to suddenly walk into the room, causing Evelyn to scold him. In another room, guest Janet begins panicking about a bad dream she just had, only for her boyfriend Mark to calm her fears. Whilst in the caves nearby, the undead appear to be leaving in droves and heading towards the mansion. The next morning, the group wake up to breakfast in the dining room, while George explains to the group that Ayres was studying magical rituals that the Etruscans used to practice involving the dead. The group then splits up. Leslie and James go exploring the grounds, Mark begins to take modelling pictures of Janet, and George and Evelyn go into the basement workshop to look at the artefacts unearthed by Ayres' dig. At the house, Kathleen and Nicholas are surprised when electricity begins to surge, destroying most of the house lights while Leslie becomes irritated that James isn't paying her enough attention. They begin to embrace on the ground, as do Mark and Janet, who finish their photography, to start fumbling. George tries to teach Evelyn how to fire a pistol, but it's interrupted when Michael seems to get annoyed by George kissing his mother. As Janet and Mark kiss, they fail to notice behind them a corpse rising from the ground, just like the ones at the caves, which advances towards them and grabs Mark's foot. Suddenly noticing this and the other zombies swarming them, the pair flee towards the house as the ground begins to fill up. In the basement, George, Evelyn and Michael are shocked when the zombies begin to encroach upon them. George fires upon them to no avail and he is soon swamped and disemboweled by the creatures, allowing Evelyn and Michael to escape. As James and Leslie continue to kiss, they spot a nearby crypt open up and a zombie emerge, only to suddenly become swarmed, forcing them to make a quick exit. Mark and Janet are still running, just as Janet's foot gets caught in a bear trap. Mark tries to help her, though several zombies soon arrive and get closer, forcing him to use a nearby pitchfork to fight them off. Though he dispatches of one, another seizes the pitchfork from him and begins to strangle him. Janet's screams are heard by James and Leslie, who arrive and cave the zombies' heads in with large rocks, saving the pair. Evelyn and Michael reach a dead end and become cornered by zombies, which she manages to immolate using some paint cans and matches. The pair reunite with Janet, Mark and Leslie and James, and manage to get back inside the mansion when Nicholas lets them in. As the undead clamour to get in, everyone inside helps to barricade the doors and the windows with nails or planks of wood. Mark then asks Kathleen to go upstairs to check everything is closed properly, but she spies an open window. Unaware that a zombie lurks underneath, Kathleen reaches out to close the shutter and has her hand pinned by a knife that one of the creatures has tossed. As she struggles, other zombies use a scythe to decapitate her and feast on her head. James discovers the grisly scene and throws her headless body to the zombies so that he can close the window while a group of the undead raid a nearby tool shed and grab hatchets, axes, hoes and scythes to try and break through the house's doors. 
James takes the initiative and begins to shoot their heads off from an upstairs window, driving them off from the main door. Leslie goes off to get bandages for Janet's ankle, which is badly bruised. But as she passes a window, a zombie's hand shoots through and grabs Leslie by the hair, pulling her slowly towards the jagged glass and impaling her in the face and cutting her throat open. Nicholas and Janet head towards one of the rear entrances and find that some of the zombies are trying to break through, with Janet sending Nicholas away to get Mark. After he's gone, the undead breach through and advance towards the injured Janet, who grabs a partisan to repel them away from her. James and Mark turn up and begin to hack and slash at the creatures with swords, whilst Evelyn grabs a machete and hacks the hands off a zombie trying to get in through a window. When another one almost grabs Michael, she lunges for the monster and decapitates it with her machete. As Evelyn takes Michael to a quiet room to rest, she becomes disturbed when he begins to grope her in the breasts and privates, prompting her to slap him. As Michael runs away, he comes across Leslie's corpse, which then suddenly rises and stalks towards him. The group form a plan to let the zombies into the mansion and hide in order to slip past them and escape, though Evelyn goes off to locate her son. Following a trail of blood from where Leslie died, Evelyn walks into a bathroom and discovers Michael dead, his arm torn off by the zombified Leslie, who sits by the bathtub eating the flesh. From the resultant grief, Evelyn blindly attacks the zombie Leslie and rams her head repeatedly into the bathtub, splitting it open and killing her. Outside, the zombies have procured a battering ram and managed to breach the main entrance, causing James, Mark, Janet and Nicholas to flee and hide. As the zombies pass them on the stairs, the group emerge to find Evelyn emerge from the bathroom, clearly suffering a nervous breakdown. The group then head for the exit, except Nicholas, who's dispatched to find a weapon for the group to defend themselves outside. As he leaves, Nicholas encounters Professor Ayres, who is now zombified and attacks him, biting his throat out and disemboweling him with a billhook. Mark and James discover this and vacate the property with the girls, hiding out in a building in the grounds until dawn. After taking a cursory look around, the group traverse the grasslands to a nearby monastery, where they spot a monk in a large cloak. Entering, James goes ahead and happens upon a congregation of the monks at a table, their heads bowed down as if in prayer. As he introduces himself, the monks lift their heads, revealing that they're the undead zombies, dressed in monk garb. They seize James and devour him quickly, just as Mark, Janet and Evelyn walk into the scene and freak out, running away. The zombies follow the threesome out of the building, just as James revives as one of the undead straight away. Managing to find their way into a model building workshop, the threesome gets stuck when zombies appear to have caught them in a pincer attack. Mark dispatches of one that blocks the way by throwing it from a balcony and proffering the girls to come to him, they are then surprised by Michael who wanders in. Despite Mark and Janet's warning, Evelyn becomes overwhelmed with emotion and embraces the undead Michael, allowing him to expose her breast and bite her nipple off. As Michael and a revived George begin to feast on Evelyn's corpse, Mark is seized by the other zombies and has his head thrust towards a buzzsaw, while zombie James and the countless other zombies reach out for Janet's face as the film ends. A verse entitled The Prophecy of the Black Spider reads out The earth shall tremble, graves shall open, they shall come amongst the living as messengers of death, and there shall be the nights of terror. We've wasted the whole morning inside the house. Why did we come to the country anyway? To twiddle our thumbs cooped up in a mausoleum? Don't worry, darling. We'll be going outside soon. Hi, everybody. Hi. 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 Hi, you two. 
Talk about slug events. You two have any idea what time it is? We don't know. And guess what? You don't care. <laughs> Where's Professor Ayers? Anybody seen him yet? He's a strange type. I guess all scientists are. Do you have any idea what it was he wanted to tell us? Only vaguely. He's studying the magic practices that were used by the ancient Etruscans, uh, something connected with the survival of the dead. At least that's what I think it is. I've always been terrified of the dead. I hope we're going to leave them in peace. Last night I had this horrible dream. I was terrified. It was exactly as though every oh, one of us... Janet, darling, please, not right now, huh? Come on, let's walk around the grounds. The light's marvelous, you'll see. You coming? There's a bunch of great pictures waiting to be taken out there. Come on, huh? Okay. See you later. Bye. Bye. Yes, it's true. The early afternoon light is incredible in this season. Oh, in that case, I'll go out and sit in it and write my letter. Bye-bye. Shall I come along? As a special favor, yes. <laughs> come on, darling. I want to show you some of the pieces the professor's found. It's a bit of a walk, but I think you'll enjoy it. Michael, aren't you coming with us? Burial Ground is one of my guiltiest pleasures, even now after having seen dozens of other similar titles. In terms of cinematography, narrative, story and characters, the film should have been an abysmal failure. Instead, it's one of the most entertaining pieces of zombie exploitation that I've ever seen, and outside of the mainstream accepted zombie flicks like Romero's stuff, Burial Ground has to be my favourite. Bianchi gets us straight into the action with a very perfunctory sequence of Professor Ayres fooling around a dig site and through some nebulous action causes a mechanism to move about and inexplicably the zombies turn up and raid his neck for some offal. It's very fast, very ambiguous, but it nonetheless gets the action started straight away. The film then takes a minor step back to focus on our main characters who are all rather vacuous but nonetheless willing to strip off clothes and frolic about en flagrante. Quite a bit of time is spent with these socialites screwing around and then the next day leisurely strolling the grounds or basement by which point the real stars of the show, the encrusted skeletal zombies, ravage the countryside with their eye sockets on the living. What ensues then for most of the film is the cast barricading themselves into their opulent manner whilst trying to survive the night against the Etruscan undead. Quite frankly, the film hits the ground running and it doesn't really slow down in terms of the zombie attacks. Even in the film's quieter moments, the zombie menace is rather omnipresent throughout. And despite the film being quite silly in execution, it more than makes up for it by being very fatalistic and downbeat by the film's conclusion. This is a kind of everyone dies and nothing can stop these zombies kind of movie, where you don't have any hope that the characters will survive, and instead choose to gloatingly enjoy their vile deaths. But with a film like this, though, that's a real pleasure indeed. Starting on the narrative, the film's script is especially threadbare when it comes to any real plot points or motivations. Professor Ayres seemingly causes the disaster when he hammers at an inconspicuous point in an Etruscan cave. A mechanism is clearly shown to have been activated when he does this, but then a zombie literally appears without warning and no further context is given to their revival. Ayres also appears to have been working at that cave for a long time, unearthing many beautiful pieces of pottery and sculpture from the area, indicating that his study of the Etruscans was quite vast. And due to a comment made by George later on, he was apparently interested in rituals performed by the Etruscans, specifically those that relate to the survival of the dead. While this can be offered as an explanation for the zombies, I don't quite understand what an actual physical mechanism has to do with a necromancy spell, but other elements of the plot might explain that too. 
When the living also die, they soon become zombies as well. And while we might think that's related to a zombie's bite, it's interesting to note that Leslie doesn't actually suffer a bite from a zombie, but is killed anyway. As the rule of zombie infection seems to be ignored, it seems to be assumed that there's something in the air that causes the reanimation, which is only backed by the rather puzzling scene of Nicholas and Kathleen witnessing all the mansion's lights flickering before the bulbs explode. Nicholas later explains that he felt a great surge of energy, which could be the very thing that raises the zombies. Combining this now with the mechanism, you could kind of infer that a chamber was opened in the cave which released a primordial curse that brought the nearby skeletons to life. Since the film doesn't offer any other explanation other than a hilariously inept prophecy at the film's end, viewers could probably just assume anything they want. Despite desiring a more concrete explanation, I really don't think that this film suffers from having a bad plot. If anything, it allows the much more entertaining anthropophagic mayhem to take precedence. There's very little narrative in terms of the characters either, as they're simply there for the weekend, in an almost 120 days of Sodom fashion, to barricade themselves away from civilization to engage in fine wines, exotic foods, and raucous sex. They all end up zombie chow anyway, so in more ways than one, their narratives are dead ends. The characters themselves are not necessarily uninteresting, despite being rather hapless in their attempts to ward off the undead. Evelyn seems to be a stereotypical mother who loves her son Michael and is devoted to her husband George. She becomes particularly defensive of her son, leading to moments where she suddenly springs into action whilst normally being quite meek. An example is dousing zombies in paint and setting them alight, or grabbing a machete to perform some impromptu amputations of the hands and head of the nearby undead. In one of her more violent outbursts, she kills the zombified Leslie with her bare hands, smashing her skull against the side of a bathtub. This devotion to her son, however, proves to be her demise. Not only does Evelyn suffer a complete mental breakdown after Michael's death, her resultant relief at seeing him walking around again means that she's incapable of processing the fact that he's now a zombie. This, of course, proves fatal as well as insane. Michael himself, played by Peter Bark, is one of the more memorable characters amongst the humans for several reasons. Meant to be like a mere 13 to 14 year old, Michael is actually played by an adult actor who has clearly stunted growth, presumably due to some sort of hormonal imbalance. It has the effect, though, of giving Michael the gait and height of a child, but peculiar facial features and the head shape of an older person. This oddity combined with Michael's bizarre behaviour, specifically an incestuous interest in his mother, makes a near unforgettable element of burial ground. In almost every scene where Evelyn's husband George makes a loving or sexual gesture towards his wife, Michael is clearly perturbed and upset. In one instance, walking into his mother, having sex with George, only to get a scolding. It's not quite clear whether George is his biological father, but it seems more likely that it's possibly his stepfather because George seems to have a mutual distance towards Michael, sort of scowling when he plays up and not really being very supportive. Evelyn is the only one to show a real care towards her son. George is always kept at arm's length, suggesting that Michael is merely his stepson. Michael's incestuous desire gets rather serious when he begins to kiss his mother on the mouth after a particularly intense zombie attack, which develops into him groping her breasts and putting his hand between her legs. She obviously reacts with revulsion and slaps her son, whereupon he runs away and is killed by the zombified Leslie. 
Even in death, however, his incestuous lust remains in his brain, and taking advantage of Evelyn's mental breakdown, he's allowed to expose her breast. He then promptly and viciously tears her nipple off with his teeth, killing her. As mentioned before, George is a relatively cold character, notable only for his constant nuisances of his wife and his open hatred of telephones, which is this movie's explanation of not being able to phone for help. The other men in the group, too, are precious little but fodder for the zombies. Mark is a photographer, while James seems to be a writer of some kind, but their occupation does little to differentiate them from helpless victims. I'd have to say, though, that Mark is probably the dumbest of the two, simply for coming up with the stupid idea of letting the zombies in the house, because they might not be after them, they might be after something in the house. I mean, honestly, the English dialogue is truly something to behold. Leslie, too, is rather vacuous, merely functioning as a professional tart, which is apparently how her husband James likes her, and is really only notable for her death sequence, in which she's grabbed by a zombie and pulled out of a window, impaling her face and throat with glass shards. This scene in particular is stolen almost wholesale from Lucio Fulci's zombie flesh eaters, though it has nothing on that eye-splintering piece of cinema. Janet is probably the more interesting besides Evelyn, despite being similar in her constant quest of stripping and acting dumb. There's a thread that's visited often that she seems to have the gift of precognition. In the film's opening, she wants to leave the mansion as she's had a bad dream involving the dead, only for zombies to then overrun the area. In another moment, she trips on a seemingly blank piece of grass, explaining that for a moment it seemed as though the ground was gone. This could either be a reference to the fact that Mark is grabbed on the foot by a zombie just a few moments later, the fact that zombies are actually beginning to stir while they're in the ground, or just the inexplicable moment where Janet stumbles into a bear trap that's been randomly thrown into the grounds. With the latter scene, however, Janet then becomes an amazingly irritating presence in the movie due to her ankle injury, bleating near-orgasmic moans for the rest of the film. She becomes so wretched that by the end of it, she's even asking Mark herself to leave her behind and let her die, only to then renege when she's surrounded by actual zombies. The characters of Ayres, Nicholas and Kathleen are also massively incidental, only providing a scene of their gory deaths, and in the case of Ayres, a zombie attack on Nicholas involving a nasty billhook. The zombies themselves, though, are the stars of the show, and quite refreshingly, the undead here don't resemble the usual bloodied humans of other similar films. Taking its inspiration instead from something like Tombs of the Blind Dead, the zombies here are dry-looking, crusty, dusty, cobwebbed, and skeletal, resembling revenants more than anything else. As they're meant to be the ancient Etruscans, the main zombies are in horrendous states of decay, and while in most cases the makeups are still effective despite being a little hokey, some of the zombies are lacking in makeup nigh completely. The fact that they don large sack-like robes really gives them an ancient creaky look that is juxtaposed with their violent attacks that they dish out. I mean, Fulci zombies looked sweltering and rotten, reflecting the tropical landscape around them, while the deadpan, cold-looking zombies of Romero seem to reflect the stark themes that he explores. By comparison, Burial Ground seems to evoke ancient history, skeletons in the closet, or garden, as it is here, and even a slight reference to class warfare, with ancient skeletal flesh-eaters dishing out violent death to a group of idiotic socialites in an ornate mansion. The makeups probably would have looked a little better had the film's scenes not been primarily in the daytime, but this isn't the most glaring thing about these creatures. 
It's that they're aeons more intelligent than their living counterparts, being able to throw knives with pinpoint accuracy, scaling walls to gain access to the building, raiding a tool shed to utilise weapons, chopping down shutters and windows, and even battering down main doors by using a ram. In one of the most ridiculous moments, the zombies wear cowls that belong to monks and pretend to be in prayer to lure the humans towards them. And strangely enough, it bloody works, ending in the much-deserved death of our cast members. Not only are they unique, but they dish out a variety of gory deaths, resulting in some of the goriest set pieces in a film like this. We get decapitations by scythe, knives in hands, flesh-tearing, disembowelments and arm removals... I mean, other wonderful elements of the film, however, are the location, which is a particularly opulent and grandiose mansion called the Villa Parisi, which today is a privately owned property that you can't really see too closely. Interestingly, there were around nine minutes of scenes deleted from the film's final edit, mainly those of the main character's car journey or the moments before they begin to have sex, but a lot of them in general are just extensions of stuff that we already see in the film. I mean, James and Leslie have a minor argument as she rests her head on James's lap while he's driving. In another, Janet is despondent about the trip, causing Mark to try and cheer her up. In Evelyn's car, she and George discuss spending time together, while Michael in the back looks uncomfortable as he witnesses George grope his mother's legs while she drives. In other scenes at the house, Leslie's little performance in the corset is extended, and it feels a lot more like a spectacle, while in another scene, Evelyn and George's sex scene is prefaced with a conversation. Again, in Mark and Janet's room, her outburst of trying to warn the others begins a little earlier, with Mark examining his camera as Janet smokes in bed, clearly tense before she decides to warn the others. The sex scenes themselves are also extended, including between Mark and Janet and James and Leslie. Mark takes a few more photographs of Janet in the garden, while Leslie wanders around a bit more. Michael examines the artefacts in the basement, and the scene of George kissing Evelyn in front of Michael is also a bit more explicit. There's also some expository shots of some zombies walking around in the grounds, James and Leslie kissing for a bit longer before they first spot the zombies, there's a slightly longer sequence of Kathleen wandering the hallways, and finally there's a few seconds of extra footage of Kathleen's corpse being ransacked for organs by the zombies. With most of these scenes, though, I don't think they would have added much to the overall plot, so it's no great loss that they were excised. But one exception for me, though, is the shot of Evelyn and George in their car. Having some context for Michael's incestuous fascination would have been at least provided in some way with this scene, as he clearly looks interested in what George is doing with Evelyn's leg. Instead, Michael's attraction to his mother seems to come from nowhere. But then again, with the amount of fun that this movie contains, that's hardly a loss. Ultimately, the film is so ridiculous, so gory and so campy that all of the film's faults simply melt away underneath their staggering weight. It has its problems, sure, but any cult fan would utterly giggle at the sheer what-the-fuck moments, the insane set pieces and the infantile, ludicrous English dubbing that it truly can't really be hated. I defy any of you, any of you to dislike this film. It's pure exploitation entertainment at its trashiest and best. The main lead, Evelyn, was played by the rather glamorous-looking Mariangela Giordano, who looks a little too fabulous, really, to be in a nasty, grungy zombie flick like this. She has, however, been in mostly nasty exploitation from Italy, such as Malabimba the Malicious Whore, which is also from the director, Andrea Bianchi, its spiritual remake, Satan's Baby Doll, the thoroughly scuzzy Giallo in Venice, and also the sect from Michele Suavi. 
Mark was played by actor Gianluigi Cherisi, whom we've spotted before as the altruistic criminal from Terror Express, but he's also been in Matai's The Nun and the Devil. Simone Mattioli played James, who's been in Matei's The Other Hell, whilst Roberto Caporale, who played the ill-fated George, joined his co-star Cherizzi in Terror Express as well, where he played a horrendous father who had incestuous designs on his daughter. As mentioned before, the bizarre Michael was played by Peter Bark, or his real name, Pietro Barsacchini, who didn't really do much else, but he apparently enjoys his cult following, as he still attends many conventions to this day. Claudio Zucchet, who played Nicholas, actually became a stuntman in his later career, working on stuff like Daylight, The Last Temptation of Christ, and Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. Director Andrea Bianchi has only a small list of releases during his time as a director, but he still has a rather prominent cult following due to the bizarre nature of his films. He's probably most famous for Burial Ground and his Giallo entry Strip Nude for Your Killer, which starred Giallo queen Edwige Fennec. He also did a slasher film, Massacre, in 1989, as well as disturbing sexploitation entries like Carnal Games, Cry of a Prostitute, Malabimba the Malicious Whore, and Exciting Love Girls. A frequently disturbing element of his films is the repeated references to incest, which seems to be omnipresent in his filmography. The writer, Piero Ragnoli, has credits on dozens of other similar exploitation films, like the video nasty Nightmare City, as well as most of Bianchi's work, like Malabimba, Exciting Love Girls, and Cry of a Prostitute. Producer Gabrielle Crisanti worked on very similar stuff too, like Malabimba, Jallo in Venice, Satan's Baby Doll, and Mondo Carne 2000. The heavily synthesised and actually decidedly eerie soundtrack was done by Elcio Mancuso of Malabimba and Kill Django Kill First fame, as well as Berto Pisano, who worked on Death Smiles on a Murderer, Strip Nude for Your Killer, Jallo in Venice, and Exciting Love Girls. The makeup was done by Mauro Gavazzi, who worked on the video nasty Killer Nun, as well as Malabimba and Jallo in Venice. The rather prominent Rosario Prestopino is credited with the zombie masks and makeups, and he also worked on Zombie Holocaust, City of the Living Dead, The Black Cat, New York Ripper, Amazonia, Demons 1 and 2, Delirium, Opera, and also The Sect. Gino De Rossi did the main gore effects, which accounts for their effectiveness, really, as we've seen him in multiple titles, like City of the Living Dead, for example. The film released in Italy under many different titles, such as La Notte del Terrore, its original title, which translates to Nights of Terror. It also went under the title Zombie Horror, and even Zombie 3 in certain territories. In the UK, the film skipped the cinema and went straight to video. CBS Fox were gearing up for a release in 1984 on VHS, but this ultimately was cancelled, presumably due to the video nasty panic that was in full swing. Some versions of this print, presumably uncut, found its way onto pirated videotapes in the mid-80s, but Britain wouldn't get the film in a legally published form until 1986, when Apex Video released an English dubbed version entitled Knights of Terror. I have to say, though, however, that this version is really not worth seeking out. It had a whopping 13 minutes of cuts to all the scenes of violence and some of the scenes of sex. Only the plain zombies and the nonsensical sequences would have been left, so it would have been quite awful to watch, really. This was the only version we were stuck with until 2001, when good old Vipco released an uncut print with all previous edits waived, though under the title The Zombie Dead. 
88 Films, however, have since restored the film in loving glory on both Blu-ray and DVD, with extra features like the deleted scenes and commentaries, etc. Now that we've left the burial ground, let's head into the territory of the Flesh Eater. A bunch of young teenagers on a hayride through the country pass by a lumberjack who's removing a tree from the earth. Continuing on, the group swaps spooky stories about the surrounding woodlands, including a rumour about a guy called Sammy and his girlfriend Jenny, who were apparently murdered here, leaving behind their class ring. A guy called Eddie narrates the story, causing the others to ask him to knock it off. Back down the road, the lumberjack pulls out the tree successfully, but finds a plate behind it bearing a pentagram. Lifting it up, he discovers a coffin with another plate on it, which reads, This evil which will take flesh and blood from thee, and turn all ye unto evil. As he opens the coffin, he discovers a pallid old man inside, who suddenly awakens and bites the man's throat open, killing him. The kids turn on the radio and begin to dance idiotically, one of them called Lisa being brazen enough to flash her breasts, while down the road, the lumberjack revives with an inhuman look on his face. Two of the group, Carrie and Bill, go to a nearby barn to have sex, only to be interrupted by the old man zombie who impales Bill with a pitchfork and strangles Carrie into unconsciousness before removing her heart and biting into it. The driver of the tractor, who brought the kids to the woods, warns them to gather firewood to fight against the cold, and explains that he'll return to pick them up the next morning. As the kids go off to get firewood, the driver returns to his vehicle, only to be surprised by one of the kids, Tony, who asks him to bring back some more beer. Soon after, though, the lumberjack attacks the driver and crushes his throat with his bare hands, feasting on his flesh just as Lisa walks by. She runs from the grisly scene just as her boyfriend Ralph leaves to go look for her. Instead, Lisa bumps into the old man zombie who tears a chunk of flesh from her neck. Ralph eventually manages to rescue her and returning to the others, the group take the injured Leisha and head for an abandoned warehouse, whilst Bob and Sally investigate the barn to find the corpses of Carrie and Bill. As they arrive, the corpses rise and begin to pursue them, as does the undead driver of the tractor. Getting inside the house, Lisa is placed on a table and tended to by Kim, whilst Julie goes to get nails to aid Tony and Eddie who begin boarding up the doors and windows. Bob and Sally return to the house, but are refused entry by Eddie, who explains that they need to find somewhere else to hide, so the pair dive into the basement using the exterior cellar door. 
Ralph manages to phone a local police department and lets them know of the danger, only for one of the zombies to cut the phone wire mid-call. As Julie boards at one window, a zombified Carrie attacks her through the window while the zombie driver enters through the rear entrance, causing Ralph to shoot him in the head with a rifle they've procured. Kim is suddenly snatched from Lisa's side by the old man who bursts through the window and kills her, while Lisa herself reanimates as one of the undead, biting Ralph in the neck. Eddie gets control of the gun and shoots the reanimated Lisa dead, only for the old man to cleave Tony's head in two with a hatchet and the zombified Bill grabbing Julie and biting her in the neck, impaling her through the chest with the shattered remains of the pitchfork left inside him. Eddie is unable to prevent the undead Carrie and the lumberjack from grabbing him and biting his neck, killing him. The police dispatcher who received the call does indeed send reinforcements out, though they doubt the integrity of the reports as it's reportedly Halloween. At a nearby residence, a family get ready for Halloween celebrations, including a mother, her two kids and their house sitter. The doorbell rings, prompting the little girl to go answer it, only for it to be the old man zombie who picks her up and bites her to death. The mother is also killed when she goes to check on her, while the son is murdered by the lumberjack who's waiting at the rear. The old man ascends the stairs and attacks the house-sitter, removing her towel and biting into her flesh. Soon, the mother's husband arrives and is immediately eaten by the entire household, who've revived. A police officer then turns up at the farmhouse and discovers the zombified corpses of Eddie and Bill, whom he shoots in the head, killing them. The remaining kids swarm him, however, just as he manages to send a message to his dispatcher, whereupon the kids break into his car and devour him. Bob and Sally emerge from the basement and encounter the horribly mutilated body of the police officer, which starts to rise, forcing them to down it using his dropped pistol. They meet with a local man who allows them to use his phone, just as the local news station begins to report on the current situation. The man then discovers his wife has been killed by a zombified carry, and as Bob and Sally run away, the man is overcome by more of the creatures and killed himself. Nearby, another bunch of kids are throwing a Halloween party, cracking open the beers and having fun. Bob and Sally soon arrive, but so do the zombies, who proceed to kill the kids in all manner of ways, such as biting noses off, stabbing them with meat hooks, and shoving their fists through chests. By morning, a posse of country hicks arrives on the local sheriff's orders to mow down any of the zombies with gunfire, with strict instructions to kill them before they kill you. The posse explores the area, shooting the majority of both sets of kids, before shooting the family nearby dead in the house. Upstairs, one of the posse encounters the husband, eaten almost completely by the house-sitter, and shoots her dead, while one of the posse outside struggles to shoot the zombified little girl. Inside a nearby silo, Bob and Sally are still hiding, and emerge when they hear the gunfire cease, only to be suddenly shot dead by the posse who mistake them for zombies. To ensure no trace of the creatures is left, the sheriff orders the buildings to be burnt. Many hours later, when the area has been all but abandoned, the sheriff returns and finds several burnt corpses still entwined within the rubble. Hearing a sudden noise, he's shocked to discover the old man zombie is still active, who bites his throat out and end the film. What the hell? Ralph, open the door! Whoa! Come on, man, those things are right behind us! It's too late! Go find someplace else to hide! Oh, you bastard!
gonna come, they're gonna come soon, okay? Well, this one is a little bit more mixed than the last, but this one is really a lot of fun. The film is the brainchild of actor Bill Heinzman, who's mostly known as the cemetery zombie that pursues Barbara in George Romero's original zombie terror, Night of the Living Dead. Heinzman was so surprised when, decades later at horror conventions, ardent fans were still able to recognise him for his iconic role in the film. As a result of this positive feedback, and having got a taste for directing when he was able to direct specific portions of George Romero's The Crazies, due to George's wife having a baby at the time, Heinzman made the decision to embark on his own film production. It was evident from the very beginning that the film was to be a very low-key, low-budget horror film utilising local talent and crew from Pittsburgh, the same hallowed location where Romero's original was set. While Heinzman pitched the idea of reusing the same character for his own film, the makers of Night of the Living Dead were reportedly unhappy, but Heisman had made his mind up that the character himself wasn't their property, but he changed a few things here and there to differentiate, such as his above-average strength and viciousness. Cast and crew were paid very little for their time, usually a flat rate of 25 bucks a day. The only exception was the gaffer, who earned a little bit more due to his experience. He felt so guilty, though, that he began to contribute towards the catering to make it fairer on the others. Other issues, though, were apparently it was extremely cold on set, as it was the middle of winter, causing some of the actors to struggle during filming their dead bodies, as they find it almost impossible not to shiver. Another issue that occurred was that during the scene of the posse member shooting the little girl zombie dead, the blank that was used shattered and embedded itself in Bill Heinzman's foot. He'd actually made the blanks himself in order to save money. As it's a low-budget feature, the expected issues are present, like a lack of any real depth to the characters, and a rather basic plotline that focuses only on the essential slaughter and moving from set-piece to set-piece. Because the majority of the actors were so amateur, and the writing was not so developed, Flesh Eater really doesn't go anywhere in terms of character development, even less so than Burial Ground. The characters there were at least charming enough in their ridiculous way. The characters here border on the bare minimum required to be animated enough to go beyond cardboard. Some of them are incredibly dickish, like Eddie, but it feels more forced than anything actually organic. The same too with Lisa, who flashes her boobs at a random moment, seemingly to ramp up the TNA quotient, while another scene involves a house-sitter being stripped of her towel before being devoured. It also seems to be quite incidental merely present to flash a bit of breast. This is not necessarily anything terrible, but it does become a little obvious sometimes about how the script requires something quite contrived to appeal to the audience. For example, Dickhead Eddie jumps up and scares Lisa and Ralph at one point, 
And Ralph, who looked and acts like a typical tough jock who isn't that sensitive, is then suddenly really irritated at an amazingly minor prank. Clearly, the script required there to be an angry reaction, but it just didn't fit with the way Ralph had been portrayed up until that point. The same with Carrie and Bill, who are supposed to be portrayed as obsessed sex pots, but they really aren't acted as such, actually seeming a little more serious than your average couple. But the characters are forced into those archetypes, simply to provide a scene where they strip off and get devoured by undead trash. The gratuity of the nudity is often embarrassingly obvious, but in one interesting anecdote about the film, originally the hula dancer girl who gets killed with the hook in the barn was supposed to have her bikini removed before she was stabbed to death. The filmmakers, though, had filmed a version of this scene where this doesn't happen, presumably for a televised format, but after reviewing the nude version of the footage, they were a little too embarrassed by how gratuitous and seedy it looked, and they used the safer version instead in the final edit. It must have been fairly blatant for even the filmmakers to feel embarrassed. So while the characters are nothing to write home about, do we at least get a good premise of a story? Not really, unfortunately. The zombie outbreak all originates from Bill Heinzman's enigmatic zombie character, who's unearthed by a lumberjack in a mysterious coffin surrounded by pentagrams and ominous scripture. There's a few mentions of blood sacrifice and magic rituals being performed in the area by some of the police characters later, and the fact that the film's events coincide with Halloween, there's enough suggested that the original Flesh Eater, if you will, is the embodiment of some magic spell cursing the woodlands. It doesn't really get explained properly, but considering the equally murky origins of Burial Ground's signature antagonists, this is hardly a negative point. What we have instead is a rather meaty collection of situations and set pieces that set up the countless victims in the film for a bloody end to their lives. As Heinzman is involved, however, most of the film's sequences and situations are noticeably lifted almost wholesale from Romero's Night of the Living Dead, including the first zombie that we see is actually Heinzman's very similar hulking man-eater. Other elements include the police officer encountering zombies while locking himself in the car, similar to Barbara in Night's Opening whilst the scene of the kids barricading themselves in Spencer Farm, it actually mirrors the main plot of Night of the Living Dead, with an equally dire conclusion. The little girl who's about to go trick-or-treating is handled with a similar moral dilemma to that of Karen in the original Night of the Living Dead, where one of the hunting posse struggles with shooting an undead little girl. The ending is also lifted wholesale, with the same hillbilly from Night shooting our final two protagonists, believing them to be the undead. In this example, though, it's a lot less effective, as we see what he sees through the scope, and you'd have to be fairly ignorant or really trigger-happy to do what he did. At least in the original, the gunman saw our surviving hero Ben through the darkened shadows of a house, and was clearly impaired to a degree. This guy in Flesh Eater, though, clearly sees two aware human beings in broad daylight, with one even shouting and waving in a decidedly non-zombie way. It leaves a rather annoying sour note, rather than the sombre irony of the original. Heinzman also knows that he's ripping off the source material with his title card, which actually reads, Flesh Eater, Revenge of the Living Dead. I realise that I've been fairly negative about the film so far, but the truth of the matter is that despite the terribleness of the main elements, Flesh Eater is actually a fast-moving and very entertaining movie. If I had to make a comparison... 
Well, think of the first Resident Evil game compared to the sequel. The first game was all set in one mansion, with more subtle nuances, fewer zombies to survive, and a more enigmatic, mysterious feel to the claustrophobic location. In the same vein, Night of the Living Dead was more focused in one location, the farmhouse, with less emphasis on the zombie menace, and more on the tension of having to survive with other people in a nightmarish situation. When Resident Evil 2 came out, it kept the spirit of the original but just ramped up the scope and the ferocity of the action. Gone was the single location where zombies reside. The outbreak has now infested an entire city, with the player exploring streets, a police station, sewers, a factory and a secret laboratory, with way more zombies, much more gore and a more out-of-control situation. Flesh Eater mimics this approach to the situation. No longer is the zombie action confined to one farmhouse, now we have the countryside, a farmhouse, other residences in the area, and the outbreak actually feels like it's spread a very long way, with the film's showcased grisly dismemberments and flesh-eating taking precedence over the other elements. These special effects are not only gloriously realised and technically excellent, but they're spread so well throughout the film that the movie is never boring. The effect of Carrie's death was achieved using a fake torso and a real pig's heart. Initially, a cow's heart was considered, but was found to be too large. So the innards of a pig were obtained from a local farmer. It was a struggle to find the heart, but they eventually fitted it with a balloon to simulate the heart beating and took it to the fake torso on the set. Because they struggled to find the heart, it was too late to inform Bill Heinzman, who actually bit into the real heart when the cameras rolled. The second-hand pitchfork impalement of Julie was achieved with a spring-loaded appliance built into the actress's back that was controlled by a lever. The man whose nose is bitten off was actually played by the film's producer and assistant director Andrew Sands. The effect, though, was achieved with a prosthetic nose filled with fake blood. The pitchfork sequence was achieved using a real pitchfork driven into a fake torso, but for scenes where the actor walked around with it, was achieved with a fake pitchfork with retractable blades and blood tubes inside it and was attached to a piece of pre-cut balsa wood so that it would balance and be lightweight enough to walk around in. I'd normally speak about the cast at this point, but there's little point as the majority of the cast were one-hit deals who didn't really appear in much else. The only exception, of course, was the main actor and director S. William Heinzman, or just Bill Heinzman. He played pretty much the same role in Night of the Living Dead, and he had minor roles in Romero's stuff like Season of the Witch and The Crazies. On a minor note, though, the little girl in a fairy costume who's devoured on her doorstep is played by Bill Heinzman's real-life daughter, Bonnie. Director Bill Heinzman, we've just discussed, though he did contribute to the screenplay as well as a writer. He was assisted in this by Bill Randolph, who pretty much only worked on jokey sex horrors much later, like Planet of the Erotic Ape or Hookers in a Haunted House. The producer, Simon Mancies, worked as a camera operator on stuff like Day of the Dead, The Night of the Living Dead remake and Bloodsucking Pharaohs in Pittsburgh. The other one, Andrew Sands, who also assisted in the direction of Flesh Eater, worked in various miscellaneous roles on Silence of the Lambs, The Night of the Living Dead remake, Two Evil Eyes, and Surf Nazis Must Die. Heinzman was assisted in the editing by Paul McCulloch, who worked on the video Nasty Midnight, as well as the Majorettes and Night of the Living Dead remake. Lastly, the glorious effects were done mainly by three people, Jerry Gurgley, Terry Godfrey and Natalka Voslakov who between them worked on My Bloody Valentine, the remake, 
the remake of Night of the Living Dead, Bloodsucking Pharaohs in Pittsburgh, Creepshow, and Day of the Dead. All in all, the film should really be like Burial Ground, an abject failure in almost every department. But honestly, the delightfully gory special effects and the real spirit and oomph felt behind the camera elevates this otherwise lowly trashy zombie film to something that is a bloody good piece of fun. It's not original, it's not special, but by heck, it's really, really fun, and I wholeheartedly recommend this to anyone who loves zombie movies. The film was released rather low-key in 1988, bypassing the video nasty era altogether, though it would certainly have been a candidate for its extreme gore. The first time the UK got the film was in 1993 under the title Zombie Nosh, though it suffered 1 minute and 41 seconds of cuts to remove a disemboweling scene, the main zombie forcing his hand through a topless girl's stomach, and removing her heart. There's shots of a topless female zombie eating a corpse missing, and there's also edits to the scene where the house sitter is chased around a bedroom and bitten. The cuts, though, were fully restored when the uncut print was submitted for a 2003 DVD release, and it's remained that way ever since. So, that's the episode for this week, guys. Thanks as ever for joining me, as usual, every week. And as ever, we'll be back next week with another round of glorious horror. Next week on Nasty Pasty, we've got an unwanted powers theme, which is chronicling horror films about demonic or supernatural powers that end up inhabiting a person who clearly didn't want them. Covering Lucio Fulci's fantastical Enigma, as well as the hilariously gory Belgian oddity, Rabid Grannies. Until then, though, take care of yourselves as always, and I'll be back the same time next week. Have a great weekend, everybody. Bye-bye.